Songwriter Trist is all about connecting with like-minded people by building relationships with those who are on a similar mission. Because when we work together, we are stronger and we have more fun. This is a bonus episode where we get to know other people in the industry and go into detail about other essential parts of what it takes to get the song from the songwriter's head to playing on your phone. Welcome to A Songwriter Trist with Caleb from Kilphonic Rights. Hi, nice to, nice to meet you over the uh, internet. Yeah, thanks for joining me and I'm looking forward to doing this little tryst and finding out more about the, the publishing company that you've got going there and what you're doing as well. But I like to start this podcast by getting to know you and who we're speaking to a little bit better. So tell me a little bit about who you are and where you come from. My name is Caleb Shreve. I was a a producer and songwriter actually for many years. That's my background. Since high school and stuff, I was in bands and things like that. As soon as I graduated, I worked for um, Sony. That was where I started. I was part of their special products team as an engineer. I got to work with like Jennifer Lopez and Michael Jackson and things like that. Just a few cool people. (laughs) A couple of other (laughs) people. Then I left Sony in the early 2000s, mid-2000s, became a producer. I kept producing. I did it. I produced and wrote some songs for Jennifer Lopez, but then kind of went into like more alternative and indie rock stuff. I It was kind of the boom of the Brooklyn generation in the mid-2000s, and I was living in New York at the time, so like those indie rock alternative bands from Brooklyn. Then like in the 2010s, I kind of got back into pop songwriting. I signed a publishing deal with BMG and continued to produce and, and uh, songwrite until, until about 2016, 2017 when I moved to Los Angeles, and that's when I kind of made the shift into the business side. I originally started managing artists and, um, you know, found that a lot of them were collecting their royalties and their rights and stuff like that. So kind of jumped into rights management just on behalf of the artists I was managing, but found out that I was pretty good at it. And then I mm-hmm. ended up for one of the competing groups to become the MLC here in the United States uh, when the MLC came around in 2019. What's the MLC, sorry? So the MLC is the Mechanical Licensing Collective. It's our version of, I think you, you guys have APRA and AMRA. I think of, APRA. Yeah. Upper Amcos, yeah. Amcos, yeah, sorry. Amcos is the mechanical side. So it's kind of our yep. our mechanical side to ASCAP or BMI, except that the MLC is actually a government-run organization or government-sponsored, whereas ASCAP and BMI are actually private, not-for-profit companies. So, um, huh. but the MLC was created to try and find, there was like about half a billion dollars, the exact number is $424 million in unpaid mechanical royalties from Spotify and Apple. And the other streaming services. Wow. Yeah, to mostly independent songwriters here in the U.S. that hadn't had publishing deals or a publishing administrator to collect on their behalf. So the problem was is that the major publishers were making a, a bid to become the board for the MLC, and they none of this four hundred million dollars was their money. They they've been collecting the mechanical royalties, but there was a small little clause in the Music Modernization Act that said if the money couldn't be found for the if the songwriter couldn't be found that the money was owed to within the first year then they were allowed to distribute it by market share which meant that the majors were going to get the remaining amount of money that wasn't distributed so that seemed unfair, yes, yeah. a bit of a conflict of interest for me so i joined up with a mm-hmm. board of independent writers and producers and publishers to try and and stop the majors from hijacking the board but we ultimately failed actually the majors won but one of my like i was gonna say i think they do that here yeah 
So as well. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so anyway, once once we lost that, one of my mentors there, this guy Jeff Price, who started TuneCore and and uh, Audium, which are some independent-minded uh, companies, kind of yep. pushed me to start a company to hold the MLC to their, you know, hold them to the fire or whatever, hold their feet to the fire, as they say. And uh, yeah, so I started Cofonic Rights to to collect and administrate mechanical royalties originally, but then we found out that most songwriters and, and independent people just really didn't have a, a grasp of, of publishing royalties. So we uh, mm. added the performance side and we had neighboring rights, and now we kind of do all rights administration for mostly independent. Yeah, I have to agree there. And honestly, we probably haven't, given a lot of space in this podcast to a copyright and rights for songwriters, which it just hasn't really come up in conversation. I haven't spoken to anyone about it. But in just as an artist and doing the business courses that I've done simply to be able to be an independent artist, which I feel like is the basic needs to be able to earn an income from your copyright. Yeah. But it's, it does seem to be something that it, a lot of artists don't understand or, or I don't know if it's they don't understand, they just haven't been taught yeah. And then I always say something that it's not really yeah. like a fun part of music business. Like it's really fun well, to be on tour. But it's essential. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's really essential. But you know, getting on playlists and, and getting, you know, getting on a good opening slot on tour, those things are really fun and really help promote your career. But yeah, there's nothing really like sexy about collecting your royalties that you're out. It's just not a fun topic. I don't know. Speak for yourself. Yeah, I think I think collecting a check on your royalties is very sexy. Yeah, yeah. I, uh, <laughs> I, mean, it is I don't know that. Yeah. yeah. Obviously, I haven't. Been- the PPCA still do that, but yeah. So it's it. Yeah, sorry. It is. It's 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 unknown, but at the same time, the one thing that does come up a lot on this podcast when I'm speaking to artists is being taken advantage of because they're ignorant of these things yeah. with signing contracts with publishing or, or record label deals that are not in their favour and, and because they don't understand it, you know, they get taken advantage of. And that is something that everyone, I find, is keep having, having to learn the hard way <laughs> and the very expensive way. The other side of it too is it's so complicated that a lot of people just kind of, you know, say, throw their hands up when they start to look and look, look into it. I did yeah. another interview... And they asked me, like, you know, if I if what mistakes I had made in the beginning of the company. I kind of, I jokingly said, "Well, I think getting into publishing was probably a massive mistake because it's so complicated." And I was talking to the CTO of our company and trying to explain to him how there's songwriter royalties for performance royalties. There's also publishing royalties, and then there's only publishing royalties for mechanical royalties. So you could like have fifty percent of a mechanical royalty, but only twenty five percent of the publishing royalty. It's just like. The yeah. which is so confusing and this is all called publishing so it's just complicated <laughs> yeah. that it's really hard to kind of understand and explain so i think that most people unless they you know work for a publishing administrator or want to get into this professionally it's really like it's too much time to really learn i guess i don't know yeah yeah and i mean look i don't know i'm good at maths that's not something that i'm proud of but <laughs> But I I, I do get it. But it's important to, I think, have your head around it or at least have someone you trust who has their head around it. Yeah. I mean, that's the problem. I I did actually another other podcast I was talking about earlier. um, Yeah. And and they asked me why I thought there was this problem in understanding of rights and and, and collecting of rights. And I, I think that it's, again, kind of to go back to like it's not very sexy, like even people in the industry aren't trying to like, they want to be in the studio with the artists. They want to be backstage at shows. Like they want to, everybody wants to be kind of this like A&R who goes out and like is a part of the whole thing. And, and I think that they've, 
they've kind of there's no there's no real incentive there either to get the artist paid it's it's really on the artist at these points and it's just hard to find managers i mean i know very few managers that understand these things and i even one time was talking to my lawyer about naming rights and i was like i can't believe that more managers don't know this and he was like there's a lot of lawyers who don't fully understand every rights too it's just rights collection is a really complicated thing that you have to kind of have a specialty in i think to understand so how is how is what you're doing helping us independent artists and, and what we have to do because i agree like I, i've got like my country in order but you know when you're dealing with music it's kind of a worldwide thing especially with spotify and all the different things that we're doing these days how, how do you guys help what do you do so yeah i mean the simplest way to say it is that we we take care of all these things for independence so if you sign up at kafonicrights.com the kind of unique thing we do is that we've built this technology and platform to to start a publishing administration company similar to other publishing administrators or publishing companies, except mm-hmm. that we've decided that we want to open up our platform for anyone who needs it, at least on the collection side. So we have a yeah. platform that doesn't, it doesn't include like the services of A&R and stuff, but if you just want to collect your royalties, you can go there and register your songs and we will go around the world to every, directly to every society, every organization and every other you know company that pays publishing royalties or neighboring rights and we'll collect those that money on your behalf. So I do get a lot of questions, like especially from people outside of the US that are like, you know, if I'm in the UK or if I'm in Australia, like, do you guys help me too? And the answer is absolutely for one reason, mm. the US is probably the most convoluted system in the world. So the fact that we are here, if you and we're also the largest market too. I mean the US is is by far the yeah. largest consumer. So the most of the money is 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 generated in the US and you know, it's the it's the hardest system to navigate. So if you are an artist from Australia or from the US or from the UK or or from anywhere, Japan or or, or even South Africa or something like that, we are yeah. able to collect royalties from everywhere on everyone's behalf. So yeah, that's that's the main simplest thing is that we are we're trying to we're trying to give access to all of these royalties. That's kind of been our, our mission statement. Because that's that's what people were lacking. That's why there was four hundred and twenty four million dollars on claim royalties. Before the MLC in the U.S., there wasn't an ability for an wasn't the ability for an independent artist to have access to those royalties unless they signed up with the publishing administrator. So now, right. now if you are in the U.S., you can sign up for the MLC, but the MLC only collects uh, mechanical royalties that were created here in the U.S. So if you're a U.S. artist, which is kind of dumb, I don't really know why this, but if you're a U.S. artist, you sign up for the MLC, you can get. You can collect your mechanical royalties just created in the U.S., but they don't collect international. Does anyone, though? I don't, no, I mean, isn't... just publishing administrators. I mean, if you were signed BMG like I was, like they go around, they go around the world. And, and even some independent exactly. publishers use larger publishing administrators for Sumerian records. Uh, Sumerian records and publishing have, they've hired us to be their exclusive administrator. So if you're signed to like a Sumerian, we go out on their behalf. But, yep. I mean, there's only one other real competitor of ours in the u.s that does this and we we thought that made a, a, a fairly blue ocean for us and from a business sense of you know competing with them yeah so yeah well it's it's i think it's important to have competition because when one one company is doing everything you know there's a monopoly and that can not be fantastic either so i'm gonna i'm gonna go back to the beginning this has all been really interesting and that's kind of why we went straight into it but i want to find out a little bit more about you because you did say you're a producer and songwriter so where did the passion for music begin for you where were you inspired what happened i don't know i mean i have i have memories of being a small child and just like i think it's funny like my 
my mother tells me a story about being like four years old and just like being so excited about Christmas and, and like running to <laughs> running the piano and writing a song about it. You know, I think my Aww. first song was my first song I wrote was called Santa Claus is coming to my house or something. And I'm sure <laughs> she has a tape of it somewhere, but we'd not be able to find it. But yeah, that was just like, I just loved the piano in my house and I loved that we had a record player as a kid and I used to love putting on like Michael Jackson records and stuff. I used to put on Thriller and just kind of like run around the house. So, um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, from as early as I can remember, music was always kind of like the thing that excited me. It was like my drug as a kid or something. So, yeah, that was my inspiration. And your parents were fully supportive of you being in the music industry, like when you're going through high school and you're deciding on what you're going to do, like actually, kind of just knew. They're not very supportive. They, I think, they always thought music was like not really a good thing. I mean, my, my parents weren't like they were like my mother was a teacher and my father was a printer. It wasn't like they were lawyers yeah. or doctors or anything that were like trying to get me to to follow in their footsteps. But um, yeah. My mother was like a musician in college. My father was not. And, you know, my mother could play piano, but it wasn't even like, you know, I kind of hate to say this, but my mother wasn't really an inspiration for me in the music side of things. Like I I enjoyed her play, but I think it really was something that I discovered on my own. And I don't think my parents were ultra supportive about it. Like, you know, like I said, I was working at Sony as soon as I got to high school. And I think they really wanted me to go to college and stuff like that. So, but then I do remember the day that I was like, working with Michael Jackson or whatever. And I think I heard my father on the phone, like, you know, kind of bragging to his brothers, my uncles and stuff like that. So yeah, <laughs> it was something after a while, but it was not initially something that they were super supportive of. That must have, I mean, it's, it's hard and I get it because I think it's hard for people who aren't passionate about it. And, and we've already discussed how complicated the music business side of things is in actually getting paid. <laughs> so it can be hard for a non-musical person to understand how anyone can actually make a living out of being an artist. And we're, you know, some of us are still scratching our heads. Yeah, exactly. With Spotify being so little amount of money, I don't know how artists can manage to survive anymore, but yeah. It's- well, how did you end up working with Sony and, and how did that opportunity come up for you? And I mean, working with Jennifer Lopez and Michael Jackson, I'm like, that's kind of, there's some big names to be dropping. Uh, how did that all come about? It was kind of sheer luck. I, in, while I was still in high school, we had to do like an internship as part of our senior program or whatever. And I went to this like technology high school and, and they wanted me to, to work in some sort of technology based um, industry. And I, and I knew that music was kind of switching over to, to digital at this point. This is like right when Pro Tools and stuff was coming out. So I convinced them yep. to like let me look for a job at a studio. Someone randomly, I, I don't even know who it was. Somebody's uh, parent in my school worked for Sony and said that they had a studio and that they could probably get us in, get me into them to, to talk about an internship. So, and it was kind of funny actually, because I was, I think the very first intern at Sony Studios in New York. So, and I, wow. I think this person, whoever they were, their, their father or mother, whoever the executive was, I think was pretty high up because I kind of like walked in and they were like really happy to see me. <laughs> and <I> was, <laughs> and, uh, like, gave, so they weren't asking you to get coffee straight away. Yeah. Yeah. They gave me this like great job <laughs> and kind of helps me like really get my, my bearings. And so I did that for like the, like 
end of my high school and then I actually left and went to another, work at another studio in, in New York. And I was like cutting school. I was like, I was skipping out on classes to go do sessions and stuff in high school. Yeah. And then the funniest story was I was working at the studio for probably three or four months and, and we did like our graduation of high school and we did like that. We'd go out all night and party for the whole night. And I basically came back to the school in the morning and jumped in my car and drove to a session and just kind of crashed on the couch until the client showed up. And I remember they were like, you look exhausted. I was like, yeah, I just graduated yesterday. And they were like, from what? And I was like, high school. <laughs> they were like, what? <laughs> So they had no idea that I was in high school when we were working together. That's hilarious. Yeah, and then I went back it's, to Sony yeah. after that. So. I, it can be hard to know these days, I find, how old people are like my niece she's 11 she's my height you know and people think she's just my friend I'm like nope who <laughs> yeah. was like five six or eight she's like 12 years old it's crazy so. yeah I get it though when I was 11 no one thought I was under 18 because I was so tall like but I come from a tall family so I think that just comes with the territory okay so so that's like that's a huge journey and then you, you did producing and songwriting and then you kind of moved on when the Brooklyn sort of scene yeah. hit with the indie rock stuff. Um, what was it that made you like start going into management and, and make that career change? Was it just because you, you had a good understanding of it and you thought you could help? Or? Yeah, I had, a, I had a partner at the time that we were kind of producing together. When I moved out to L.A., he had a studio here. Um, mm-hmm. I moved into his studio with him and... We started doing a lot of projects together. He was actually also signed to BMG, and he was in a okay. fairly popular band, like in the late '90s, early 2000s. And we just kind of got a little bit frustrated with the idea that, you know, it was really like a big time for this kind of like LA circuit, where artists would come here and just like go go around the circuit and meet every producer, and it was like well, all the same guys and and. And it was just like, I don't know, we, we would meet artists, we'd work them for a couple of days, we'd spend a few more days on working on their song, and, you know, we'd go back and forth, and we we were just doing tons and tons of work every day, and, and these artists were not really doing anything, and it wasn't, it wasn't that they weren't hmm. our songs, it was just like nothing was happening, they would kind of do the circuit and then disappear, and, and we kind of were like, we need a better better answer for this, so... We thought about starting like a production company, but that usually involves like signing people's publishing and signing kind of these deal type arrangements where we, you know, have a certain number of albums and we control which songs are on the album and stuff like that. So I think I've always been against that. We, we had an artist that we were thinking about working with first and she had just come out of a, a really controlling production deal. So I knew that she didn't want to do another production deal. So we were like, what about management? You know, we all have been on tour a lot. We knew that we knew how to tour and knew that whole scene. So, you know, we thought we really could help out as managers because we've kind of been through it all. Like we've done radio promotions and production stuff and record deals and touring. So it seemed like yeah. it was all encompassing to help. And so, yeah, we picked up like three or four artists that were around LA that we knew were kind of like, I don't know, looking for, for some guidance. And that was like, you know, seemed to be the best thing for us to do first. Yeah. And and of all the things, because I mean, it, you've done a lot and it feels like you've done it really quick, but if you did it, started it out of high school, then, you know, plenty of time. So <laughs> <I'm> the, <laughs> what what would you, yeah. what, what's your favorite part of like creating music and songwriting and, and everything that you've done and what you're doing within the music industry? Like, what is it that just keeps it going for you? Because so many people kind of, get into it and then they just leave you know yeah i mean there's something about like you know when you write a song and there's like 
you get the the demo kind of done and and um you know you actually like play it for the first time like you know you're working on a song and you're building up the track or you're you've come up the part and you're kind of putting the lyrics together and then you know there's that moment where somebody's like all right let's go like lay this down and and you know you actually record it and play it back and i've always i've always said as a mixer like that's you know i don't know if you've ever heard the term like demoitis but people you know sometimes have real struggles to get a final mix because they just love the demo so much and I think that kind of, mm. that feeling you get as a as an artist or songwriter when you first hear that demo of the song and it, you first kind of like really capture it and really like understand what it is that it just kind of clicks with you and it and it's almost like it's again like a drug like you're kind of chasing that feeling which is why I think some people run into problems mixing because you're like okay the song's done now and you're like oh, it just doesn't I don't have that feeling I did when I when I heard, first heard the demo in my car or whatever. So yeah, I think that kept me going for years. It was just like, I love that as a producer when, you know, we'd sit and write a song and then, you know, I'd like finish the track or whatever. And maybe I'd call the writer back in or the artist back in and be like, all right, let's listen to this and turn it up really loud and just kind of like listen to it. And I don't know if you had this experience, but you know, I, I would sometimes come into the studio the next day and just like listen to a song like five or six times in a row, just like really getting so excited about what we created. And Oh Yeah. Yeah, I think that, you know, creating, you know, creating music is just, it's, it's creating something from nothing. It's, it's, it's brilliant. So I love still <laughs> seeing that in other people, you know, so I think I, I anything I can yeah. help those people, you know, like, I guess, and too, that was it. Like, there's like that feeling of your, I've read this experience where like, I remember um, a couple of years ago, I was here in LA, I was still living in New York at the time, but I came out and wrote with this guy. And since I was just visiting, I didn't have a car and he, he was living here. And so he was like, yeah, I'd be back. And we like made a CD, I guess, of it, or maybe it was on my phone or something. And we like yeah. got in the car and listened to it on the way back to my house. And it was just like, it was so cool. We were so happy. And it was like that thing where he, we finished it. And I just like looked at him and he's like, can we listen to it again? And I think he embarrassed <laughs> to ask. And I was like, no, dude, let's listen again. It's awesome. So like I said, seeing that feeling other people is so cool too. So I think that's why like in the management side of things, I loved like, you know, setting people mm. or other producers and writers and just yeah, helping them to see their songs and, and I, I guess their dreams to some extent just kind of come to fruition. It's a cool thing. It is such a high yeah. to like to write that new song and then to just not be able to get it out of your head. Like those ones that you write it and then you just, it's there and it just exists in you. And then the whole process of getting it from that, you know, that initial song right to being released into the world is such a massive process. I used to like that for mixing too. I, I mixed, um, I don't know if you know the band Fanagram, but I mixed their, their like EP after they did their first record. And the single from it was a song called Don't Move. And I remember, <clears throat> I think they were kind of like sending stuff back and forth. Like, you know, I know that Sarah, the singer, was like doing some of her vocals like in a hotel room, on tour, and like the producer Josh was like had made the tracks and it was kind of like rough mixes and that it was just kind of like had bounced around between the two of them and I think I finally in the studio like we reprinted everything and and worked on the mix for a while and I think like I finally like finished the mix and or at least the first version of it and I remember like we all kind of sat at the console and I was like all right let's listen down and and we all just kind of had chills and like I don't think anyone said anything after it was done for like a minute we all just kind of sat there like wow that was awesome so it's incredible yeah again those feelings are just like 
you know, that's why why you do it. People always joke on tour too, because tour is so rough and hard, but it's like you do it because that one hour every night is so much fun that the rest other yeah. three hours of sitting in a van and struggling around and getting up earlier are worth that one hour. So it's kind of Absolutely. Yeah. I mean it's for me it's a mix between writing the song and then being able to perform it on stage to like a live audience. Like those two things. Yeah. Yeah. I used to love- All the other stuff. <laughs> yeah. I love- you you toured for a bit though. So what, what changed with that? You just got over it or? Yeah. I mean, I got a little older, obviously. I think that, you know, again, like mixing and stuff, I, I felt like sometimes with like, I don't know, I don't want to say like younger kids, but you know, I just felt like there was some younger you know, and more, I guess, more green producers started to kind of annoy me. It wasn't as fun anymore. I, you know, they would, there actually was this one time where a kid had, was like kind of freaking out about his mix and was like, it's all, it sounds crazy and all this stuff. And I was like, oh, wow, come back and let's fix it. And he had like, he just like wanted to turn the hi-hat down and the vocals up a little bit. And I was like, okay, that was, we, we could have done that over email. It was just like a big drama and then like, you know, uh, there's just, I, also too, like, this is a weird thing, I guess, but like with Pro Tools and stuff and, and Logic or whatever, like people started making songs that had like millions of tracks, like just hundreds of tracks and stuff. And I don't know, it's just like, it seemed to become, I don't know, more technical to me or something. I don't know, I just, there, I think I just didn't connect as much as I used to as a kid when I was making my, you know, I, I grew up as like a hip hop kid in the 90s and in the early 2000s. Like, I just love, mm. you know, drum loops and like, samples and and you know fun yeah fun hooks and things like that and then all of a sudden like hyper pop came along and it was just like layers and layers of keyboard layers and layers of drums and basses and it was just like everybody was trying so hard to create the next opus every time and i don't know just it didn't feel as fun anymore so i think i wanted to step back from at that point it evolves, but uh, yeah, I, I'm, I'm definitely a lover of simplicity yeah. and I don't make music for musicians. I make music for people. <laughs> I think so many people are trying to impress other musicians and I was like, think about the listeners. Like they're not, they don't care that you've got eight different bass sounds in the song. They want to hear the song. So I will say I, yeah, I, yeah. in the United States now there's this big movement it's kind of funny because there's no like Seattle anymore, I think because of the internet, like they're all scattered around the country, but there's a bunch yeah. of places like in the Midwest here in the U S that are doing like this, like kids are learning how to play guitar again, because I think they're not impressed by bedroom pop anymore. Like everybody has a laptop, everybody's yeah. going and making these like lo-fi beats. But <clears throat> I think the kids that are impressing each other now are like, you know, these like girls who are shredding a guitar and just like, you know, yeah. so there's a whole new kind of, new crop of kids coming up around the u.s that i hear a lot that are like three four piece bands and i'm i'm kind of like maybe i should go back because this was my i mean i was like a nirvana kid too growing up that was like my thing so exactly um, yeah and i think i think it's beautiful to get back to that rule i mean i i appreciate like i don't know if you know like hired as cody i went to their gig the other day uh, yeah. and they're kind of like incredible musicians like i mean that's incredible it's like opera i don't know like, i mean i appreciate it it's hard <laughs> Yeah. But it's not something I'd chuck on to just sort of connect to emotionally or as a human being, you know, that is different. I don't know. And and that's where everyone's got their own thing. No one's going to like the same sort of music, you know, you've got to right. connect to whatever you feel. Right. But it was always weird to me, like, watching, like, when electronic music got to its kind of peak in, in this, like, second wave or third wave of, of like, hyper pop and stuff. It was just, like, a guy yeah. standing at a DJ table playing, like, Ableton and... I don't know. It was just like, 
I guess the music was really intense, but I just, I never really understood as much as like going and seeing, you know, a band play and, and drums and guitar players and everyone like working together was so much more exciting to me. So it's almost like the imperfections from live music is what makes it so exciting. Yeah. It's like, that's so real and it's honest. Right. And, and, and in, in a world I feel like where we've kind of lost realness and honesty with, you know, filters and everything is just so fake and Photoshopped right. to, to be able to watch someone just play an acoustic guitar or play something and just through a mic with maybe a little bit of reverb and like, you know, no auto tune or anything like that. Right. It's just like this honest truth connection that um, I think I crave. And I feel like a lot of people are kind of, craving that honesty somewhere in their life. But we can talk about that forever. I want to ask you about, <laughs> I like to ask about co-writing and I assume you've done a lot of that with, with your experience. What would you say the most important advice is for a, a co-writer or going into a co-write? I would say the most important thing is to like connect with the person first. You know, I think that if you're going to write a song with somebody, it was always weird. Like this was kind of a funny thing with, that I used to joke about too, that, you know, somebody would come in, like, like when I was in BMG and they'd send me a, a songwriter or an artist or something, it's like, they'd come in mm-hmm. and we'd like hang out for an hour and then we'd try to write like a really personal song, you know, about a love that was lost or something. And it's like, I barely know this person and I'm trying <laughs> to relate and get into their head about, you know, like somebody who hurt them really bad, you know? And it's like, but you can, I mean, I think it's a bit... I think of acting as like a, as an art form as well. Like, you know, you, yeah. it's, it's a bit like acting and, and not in a bad way of like trying to really get there with the person. I think that's what I mm. try to do when they're reading scenes. They try to find that moment in their life that, that relates. I actually remember this was actually a really funny carding session, but you know, we, I was yeah. talking to a guy and he had like told me this story about his, him and his girlfriend were living together and they had, she had like synced her iPhone to her iPad and he was on the iPad and she was like in the bathroom and she was set, like about taking a shower and was like sending nude photos of herself to some other guy. And it was like popping up on the iPad. So he was like, oh. real time as she was in texting nude photos of herself in the other room. And, <sighs> But I just remember, like, I think he was kind of like, I think, I don't know if he was over it or not. I couldn't tell. But, you know, I think it was just like, it was so ridiculous and, and, but also like, you know, real and modern. And I know there was just something about it, that story that connected with me. And I think we ended up yeah. writing a song about it that was great because it was just like, I really, I really like felt him and, and just made a connection with him over him telling that story. So, yeah, I think in a co-write, it's it's important to listen to the other people in the room, especially whoever the artist is, you know, like what they really want to do. Because, I don't know, again, as a producer, that was always my kind of role. I always wanted to help people make their records, not not make my records for somebody else. Yeah, yeah I always wanted to connect with the with the artist and, and find something about them that was real and, and and kind of start there. It's just like getting to something real will make a song go so much faster. It's really good advice, I think, especially for someone if you're working with the person that's going to be performing that song. Yeah, if they don't connect to it, then they probably won't perform it, which, you know, means the song's dead before you even start. So yeah. I do think that's really, that's really good advice. I've made that mistake too. As I got done the opposite. I think that I was really feeling something and, and I think you're right. Like I, I kind of drove the session because 
for whatever reason, the artist that day wasn't feeling very open. So I ended up writing a song that yeah. was more meaningful to me. And then, yeah, that just, they never ended up performing it because it didn't mean anything to them. So, But if they didn't open up to you as well, like that is their job. And it is a part of, it's hard. You've got to go, kind of get really vulnerable with someone real quick. And that's kind of where this the trysts came from is that kind of conversation you need to have with a songwriter before you write something together because it is about getting to know each other and yeah. really understanding what the other person like where they come from and what, what makes them tick and why they want to do it. Yeah, I, um, that was my advice is to find that first is important and save so much time later. Yeah, I agree. Tell me, if you could go back in time though and talk to yourself as a kid, you know, in high school or, or whatever, what, what would be the one piece of advice that you would tell yourself to maybe help along the way, avoid some of those mistakes? I don't know. I think, you know, being like a bit older now, I... I think, you know, it's like you always hear this advice, which again, like if I told myself as a kid, I probably wouldn't listen to myself, but right? <laughs> because I feel like I've been told this, like, you know, the whole, like, like let things go and like, don't, don't like hold on to the past or like, you know, you know, don't take things too, too much to heart. Like, I think that as a young producer, as a young songwriter, it was always like, oh, is this song is going to be it like this or this project or this band or or, you know, whatever, like, this is going to put me on the map and the, and then I'm not going to have to, like, work as hard or whatever kind of narrative I'm, <laughs> you know, like, oh, this is just going to set me up. Um, to, and and uh, I got, like, a, this similar question a, few, a couple of days ago, too, and it was, like, you know, I look back now and I'm, like, you know, there were times where I took things too seriously or put too much pressure on a project to be the thing and got really angry at the artist for not working hard enough or for the label for not doing their job or whatever it was. And, you know, those yeah. things really took a lot of my time and energy. And then, but now it's like, I look back and there was like, nothing was that hard and nothing was that easy. It's like, you know, the music industry is really tough, but I can kind of look back and have a career now that has had some impressive moments. And, and it's kind of like, like what we were kind of joking about or talking about with touring that it's like really about that one hour here and there. And, you know, I think that as long as you can not let the bad, you know, parts take over your emotions too much or take over your, your energy too much, then, you know, just kind of go with it. And like I said, let things go. And, and, you know, when that song doesn't do well, or this person or that person didn't do what they were supposed to like move on from it. You know, I think that I have a lot of negative feelings towards people. And then, 10 years later, I'm like, that, that whole thing like, really was nothing. Like, you know, there's so many other projects I was doing at that time that were so much more valuable to me and my growth and my career. So, but like I said, when I was immature, I wouldn't have heard that. So, yeah, <laughs> emotional maturity, I think, is something that we all have to learn as we grow. And some people do and some people don't. And that's their choice. And that's the thing. It's, it's your choice what you, <laughs> whether you type, I'm sure choose sure. to be emotionally yeah. intelligent. I think it's it's your kind of lifelong mission, I guess, is kind of my ultimate point is that, you know, eventually you get to – I mean, like I think, I think about my life in certain periods, you know, like there was my late teens out of high school to like my mid to late 20s, which yeah. were like really fun time for me. But like I didn't get a lot done. I mean, I – I, I did do a lot of cool things, but it was just like, that was the time where I was learning. And then like my late twenties to my mid thirties was like really hard actually. Like I, I see so many, mm. I feel like most of the people I work with now are in that period of like, you know, like 27 to like 33, 34. And it's like, those years are really hard. Cause you're like, you're a bit older, you know, it's almost like what you know is, is more painful because you you know enough that you're like, I know I'm not doing this or I'm not doing that. And you put a lot of pressure on yourself in those years. And then 
like I said, after that, like after like 35, you start to be like, oh, you know what? A lot of this doesn't really matter that much. And I've had a good life and I'm going to keep doing it. So I think, yeah, like learning that emotional maturity throughout all those periods for me is, you know, came slow or whatever. But yeah, like at some point you just kind of, it clicks a little bit, but I'm sure I still have more to go and more to learn, you know. You know, that very self aware. Yeah. Everybody. And that's something that, yeah. <laughs> I think that's, I, I love people who are self aware because it does, it makes life easier <laughs> than, um, than dealing with people who, who aren't. But everyone's there. I think a lot of songwriters are a little more self aware to some extent mm. because they spend a lot of time thinking about how they reacted or some, I guess don't, I understand. Yeah. probably just blame the world for everything, but just try to put themselves in the, in the like judgment seat to see what they did wrong at some point. Yeah. All right. Tell me, and this is like one of my last official questions I ask everyone, you know, you're a songwriter and you've done like, you've had an incredible life so far and I'm sure you've got plenty more to give. Tell me if you could collaborate or work with anyone in the world dead or alive, who would it be and why? <laughs> That's a funny question. Cause I'm, I'm a little bit of the like, don't meet your heroes vibe. Yeah. <laughs> Especially for me, I, my my biggest hero in music is Damon Alburn. And I mean, I Blur was like my favorite band as a kid. I loved the Gorillaz. <laughs> everything that he's done, the good, the bad, the queen, like, you know, his solo stuff. But yeah. I've heard he's absolutely the biggest asshole in the world. So I think he tried to work. <laughs> I think he worked with Adele and Adele was like, fuck that guy. Like, it's just like, he's got such... <laughs> He just recently like shit on Taylor Swift publicly and he's just like a mess of a person, but fuck, he makes the best music. I think he would be one for sure. And then, I don't know. I mean, I've, I grew up listening to like the Beach Boys. I was a huge uh, Brian Wilson fan. I like the Kinks. I think like Ray Davies and the Kinks would have been an awesome person to just cause those guys too were kind of like making this pop music when it was still being created. There was a lot of people from the 60s and the 90s. Those decades for me were like huge in my experience. Actually, one of the people, I was a huge BC Boys fan and I got to work with Ad Rock on a record. We produced a couple songs together. So I'm actually to to cross off some of my bucket list there. But yeah, I would say like a Damon Albert or like a Ray Davies would be my dream at this point. Yeah. what is there someone on your bucket list that you'd really like to tick that you think you can? I don't know. I don't think there's like, I feel like there was somebody, but no, I can't think of a movie off the top of my head that I would like to go off right now. Okay. That's all right. right. <laughs> it's fine. All right. Well, tell me what, what are the plans for 2022? You had an incredible 2021 with Kilphonic Rights. Where is it heading and, and what do you want to see happen in the next year or two? I mean, right now we're, we're growing the company pretty quickly, which is great. I, and I want to keep growing. I, I, right now we're actually looking for investment. At the end of last year, we, we, we partnered up with a financial firm and got mm-hmm. through all of our, our financial documentations and valuations, stuff like that. This year, I think I would love to get some investment uh, for the company and, and really start to grow all of our efforts, our marketing efforts, our A&R efforts, you know, get the technology yep. we have in mind built. I mean, I think really we want to do, we have some great goals on how to like, or great ideas on how to standardize some of the data that's been a problem for musicians and artists. I also really like one of, this wouldn't be 2022, but I, I have a dream for one day making making it equal between songwriting and sound recording. Like right now at Spotify, it's like 80% is paid to the master, which is the sound yeah. copyright, and only like 20% is paid to the composition, which is the songwriters. 
Yeah. I did not know that. Yeah. So, yeah. And that, that's a lot in, in recorded music. Most money goes to the master side. But these days, I mean, you probably know from co-writes and stuff, like the recording and the songwriting is almost the same now. Like people go into sessions and write in the computer and write with Pro Tools Open and write with, you know, while they're recording. So there doesn't really yeah. be much of a difference anymore. I feel like it should be 50-50. It is that way in sync. Like if you <laughs> sync a song with TV, they, they have yeah. a license for the for the master or for the sound recording, and they have to get a license for the composition. And they're usually MFN, which is most favored nation, meaning that either side has to pay the same as the other side. So if the master gets more, then the composition gets more. So they kind of recognize yeah. the idea that those two intellectual properties or copyrights are the same in sync, but in streaming and in a lot of other places, the master is so heavily weighted over the over the composition. So it's just a right. just a problem that publishing the major publishers are all owned by the major labels so you know it's yeah. publishing to go out and say hey we should give it 50 percent of the of the royalties for these songs because the label is going to be like well you're just taking 30 percent of our money and and we have yeah. worse deals than the publishers have for the artists so it's just going to take money out of our pocket so so um is that because, I guess, the, the old school way of doing things was, you know, you and I would write a song, we might spend three hours and we'd, we'd have some chords and lyrics and then the record label would be the one that's investing all the money into the, the recording of it and, you know, the pushing it out to CDs and records and shops. And, all, and so there was a bigger expense as far as releasing music. Yeah, for sure. Is that why... Is that where the imbalance came from? Yeah, for sure. That's, I mean, because not only just recording, like, that's... That's mostly why recording deals are so are so weighted uh, towards the label too. Is that you know, if you think about it, back in the day, you'd have to get a studio that was thousands of dollars a day. You had to get engineers to work there. Like you had tape yeah. you had to buy. Like you know, it cost thousands and thousands of dollars to make records back in the day. So you know, of course, like some twenty year old kid who is probably a drug addict or whatever, like is gonna need like it's a basically a loan, you know, record deal. So it's like you know, yeah, eighty percent interest rate or something is yeah. is reasonable when you're investing that much money. And then like yeah, you said like then they make CDs or records, which are cost a ton of money to get shipped. They have to buy shelf space in the stores. There's stocking fees, yeah. things like that. So, but yeah, none of those things exist anymore. Everything's digital. They record records in bedrooms and they record records in small production studios and with just a vocal booth. And, you know, they cost often too, people come to record labels with the finished record. They, they said that they, them and a producer linked up and made a record together. So they're just, the yeah. costs are just not there anymore in the digital world. And there's none of that. Yeah, shipping or stocking of CDs. So yeah, all- no, there's merchandise, but that's completely different. <laughs> yeah, merchandise is different, but yeah, as far as the CD and 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 sound recording goes, yeah, it's definitely a, a whole different world than it was 20 years ago, and the, and the rates haven't followed. Yeah, right. So you'd like to see that change? Yeah. Is that something that you guys are actively involved in? Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm right now actively like paying attention to it. There's been some like in the UK, the Parliament's doing an inquiry about the inequities of of publishing and and sound recording. Um, I don't think anyone's really quite offered the fifty fifty rate yet, but they're talking about raising the songwriter's side. I mean, there, mm. there's like an article that was like kind of got kind of buzzy for a while that the songwriter said that they did the math and they had like a, a fairly popular song and it didn't even pay for like, you know, the cost of them taking the train into the city and buying lunch that day. Like they added up all yep. the costs of what it 
it meant for them to go to the studio and write the song. And like, I think it was like, yeah, half or something of the money they were going to make from this song on Spotify was going to this, the cost of living that day. So it's so, it's so crazy that the songwriters can't make enough money to, to survive anymore. Yeah. Well, I appreciate you like bringing that sort of stuff up and bringing it to the forefront because it is, you know, I know some songwriters and, and, Myself, we're all working very, very hard. But yeah, if we can't manage our copyright, which is, you know, our artwork and get paid for it, then we have to find income from, you know, living money from somewhere else. And so it's nice to hear that there are people out there advocating for for that exact thing. And it's going to make a difference to the whole music industry and the way that we we see things and gives me a bit of hope and faith <laughs> in the industry, which is nice. That's really my goal for, for the next year and several years. Like I, we're trying to start a company at Kilphonic that really supports artists. I, like, I think that's why I'm so, I'd like to talk about my background as a musician so much is because these, those are the people that I connect to, like I connect to songwriters and to artists and like, that's always who I was as a person. So, you know, yeah. in the fight of, songwriters versus labels and businesses i'm i'm gonna always be on the songwriter side and every decision you make at the company is you know is for songwriters so i remember somebody asked me too like what was the like thing that we were doing right now disrupting the industry or whatever and i don't think that yeah you can't really at this point point to one thing we're doing that is disrupting it but i do think that the culmination of like how we structure our deals and how and you know we let people kind of do a la carte with what they want us to collect and the terms are super flexible. And it's just like the idea that we can do all of these things for artists is really where the the disruption comes. Like if somebody comes to us, we're trying to automate the process as much as possible so that whatever you need, it's cost effective for us to just do that for you. And if you want flexible terms so that you can move around and, which is ultimately, I think, how you know artists and songwriters are going to be empowered in the future is if they can move around, if they can, you know, they can license a couple of copyrights to this sync company to go for, and a couple of copyrights to this publishing company to pitch, and you know, hold on to a few for themselves, like, and get rights back after certain terms. Like, that's going to be an economy that works for for songwriters in the future. So we're just trying to be a part of that overall to let people, you know, do what they need to. I love that. Get oh, that's brilliant. Need. I, I really Thank appreciate you. you sharing. I appreciate what you've done. And I mean, I, I love your story and, and it sounds like you've been really ambitious, but also just a hard worker and, and had fun along the way, which is really important in this industry. And yeah, I, I really look forward to hearing more about what's what's to come yeah, um, from you guys and from you and supporting it. And I think everyone listening to this podcast is, is going to be inter- interested and have you know, buying into some area of it because we're all songwriters, you know, we, we want to be able to do what we love, but we want to be able to be recognized for it as well, even if it is enough money to buy a coffee. <laughs> yeah, thank you for having me. I, I love talking about this and if you ever want to talk again or more, I'm, I'm always around or if you ever do. I love like talking on panels and stuff too, where lots of people can get together and share ideas and debate. So I love that too. I'm the worst debater. I usually go for the devil's advocate, but I'm a big believer in following your gut. You know, so, yeah, so you got to do it. You got to do what you got to do. Yeah, let's do this again. Is there anything else? You, yeah, I will. Is there anything else you'd like to say before we finish up? No, I just think again, I'd love to to plug our company, Kilphonic Rights, and say that if you really want to collect all of your royalties, if you're afraid that you're missing out, I mean, that's the biggest thing. I think is that some people don't trust that they're 
getting everything that they're owed, which is most likely true. There's so many different little copyrights around the world and, and different rules in different territories that it's hard to do on your own and we understand that. So, you know, if you go to Kilphonic Rights and sign up, we'll, we're around. And, you know, people can DM me on Instagram. I'm at Caleb Shreve or on Kilphonic Rights. We like to answer and talk to everybody that we work with too. So reach out and we're here to help. I will put all of your links and contact details into the description of the podcast and we're also going to have a blog on the website specifically for you um, so people can go there and get in contact and, and check out more for themselves. And, yeah, I really appreciate you chatting to me. 